Hi, my name is Jana Metzger. Welcome to the Gospel House. Our mission here at the Gospel House is to show the world that the gospel of Jesus Christ is enough. That in the gospel, we can find all of our deepest needs met as the entire church responds to and applies the implications of the gospel. We would love to show it with you. Check out our website, www.thegospel.house, where you can learn more about us, find out how to connect with us, ask questions, see when and where our next meeting is, and give to help advance the gospel message of Jesus Christ. Uh, Today we are actually going to wrap up the three weeks that we have been spending on Jesus' second beatitude. Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Uh, We have spent an extended amount of time uh, on this single beatitude, and then we're going to spend an extended amount of time starting next week on the first beatitude that Jesus gives us. Um, Blessed are the poor in spirit. So we're going to start that next week, but for this week we're going to wrap up blessed are those who mourn, and we're going to do so by talking about blessed comfort. So the past two weeks we have talked about our mourning. Uh, The first week we talked about how we need to use our mourning. We need to disciple with our mourning. And so instead of, you know, there, there's incredible comfort that we take, and this is, this is a biblical truth, we don't ignore it, there's biblical truth that we serve a God who weeps with us. All through scripture, the promise is not that you will be delivered from trials, not that you will be delivered from hardships, but in the middle of your trials and hardships, God will be with you. That's the promise that we have in scripture. And so that's comforting, but... We can't just be comforted by that. There are steps that we have to take with that 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 fall to us that we need to do. Because along with that, there's a a biblical command that we need to use our mourning. And that means that we need to let our hearts be broken for the things that break God's heart, right? And then along with that, we then need to comfort others as they mourn. And most often we do that by sharing the things that we mourn with each other which means we got to get vulnerable with one another, right? We really don't like vulnerability, and, and we all remember that. It's painful to share, right? When, when you know, we're vulnerable with one another, it can be painful because it admits, I don't have it all together. And especially in our culture today, we really don't like admitting that. But we have to. We have to disciple with our mourning. And so we've got to do that. And then last week, we talked about the different traps that we can have in mourning that there are very real dangers in mourning that we can either stay in it too long or we can try to pretend that mourning doesn't exist. And neither of those things are biblical things. And so what we have to do is we have to aim our mourning. We've We've got to aim it and we've got to be comforted by God. Let him comfort us because if we don't, we'll fall into the very real trap of finding false comfort, right? Now this week, we are going to talk about the how to of comfort. Last week, we kind of ended on the fact that we have to find true comfort in God, right? But God has a very particular way that he comforts us. Now, it's different with everybody, but when you break it down and look at it at its core, we'll find that there's one similarity in all of God's comfort. And so we've got to learn how God comforts because if God comforts us one way, We can't go comfort other people a different way, right? That's the whole point of all of this stuff, is that if we are going to do it, we've got to do it God's way. 
And so what we'll find here is some very cool biblical truths and biblical connections that show us how God comforts, but also how we are to comfort each other as well. So these are the three things we're going to hit today. We're going to start by looking at the aim of comfort. Then we're going to look at how that aim of comfort shows us the truest form of God's comfort. And then finally, we're going to look at how that leads us to comfort others. And we're going to do it by using one of my favorite Bible stories. You all know what's coming if you've been paying attention, but you don't know yet. So first, the aim of comfort. We're not going to spend a ton of time on this part because I would hope if you've been listening to any of this sermon series, you all know the answer to this right now, right? We know the answer, but do we know the answer, right? There's the largest distance in the world, somebody said this once, is the distance between the head and the heart, right? That's not me, I didn't make that up, but, but it's true. You can know all the facts that you want, but until you get it down into your heart, you're never going to live those truths. And so, who is the aim of our comfort? God, right? God himself. Who is the aim of every single beatitude that we have talked about, right? This is the trap we fall into, and we've hit it every single week, so I'm not going to bludgeon you over the head with this club anymore. But, but we fall into this trap of looking for blessing in everything and everyone except for God himself. But God consistently tells us that he is our blessing. And if you are stripped of everything else in this world and everything else in the next world, the question remains, is God enough? The true disciple of Jesus' answer is yes. God is enough. And so we have to stop making it about everything else, right? We've got to look to God for comfort and to him alone. We get this really cool promise from Paul, and, and we're going to look at this because, not necessarily because it's the only place that we get like this slam dunk of a point here, but because I've seen this verse made into so many other things, but I want to draw out the common thread in this verse. This is from 1 Thessalonians 4, starting in verse 13. Look at what Paul says. He says, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about those who are asleep. He's talking about Christians who die. Those who are asleep so that you will not grieve as indeed the rest of mankind do, who have no hope. Christian, we do not grieve like the rest of mankind, right? Because we have hope. But you can't claim that promise if you can't find your hope. So where is your hope, right? For if we believe that Jesus died and rose from the dead, so also God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep through Jesus. For we say this to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout and the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first then we who are alive who remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air so that we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Now, I have heard this passage be used to explain all sorts of theology. 
well, do you believe in pre-trib or post-trib rapture? And, and when we are raptured, are we actually going to float up into the sky and meet Jesus in the clouds? But y'all, we do this all the time as Christians. We go through this book and we get lost in the weeds. And so we split the church. We create denominations that, well, we don't believe people float, so we're not going to meet Jesus in the actual clouds. These are figurative clouds, so we're going to start this church. And we're splitting hairs. Read the book of Revelation, y'all. I, I, Jack, I, Jack Hayford, he's, he's one of my favorite pastors. I used to listen to him all the time, but, but I heard him preach on the book of Revelation once, and he got fiery about it, y'all. But, but I related to it because so many people read the book of Revelation and they want to focus on all the plagues and the end times and the trumpets and the curses and all the things that God pours out. Y'all, if you actually read the book of Revelation, the consistent theme throughout the entire book of Revelation is worship. It's not condemnation and plagues and hellfire and brimstone. Are those things in there? Sure but we get lost in the weeds. And it's the same thing with this verse. Y'all, I don't give a rip whether I'm going to float up into the air and meet Jesus in the clouds. If you want to take it literally and that's literally what's going to happen, cool, I'll take it, right? The point is not how we get to Jesus. The point is that we get to Jesus, right? This is the focus of this passage. This is the focus of this book. Stop making it about things that it's not. We are going, the, the hope, the hope that Paul talks about here is not in restoration, right? The hope is not in healing. It's not in any of these other things. It's not in floating into the sky. The hope is in Jesus. Again, y'all, this is one of those things. We know this, right? We know this. So we've got to be about it. We've got to pretend and we've got to live like we own it. God is the aim. It is so easy, y'all, to get lost in these traps. The devil has, has made this world his playground, and he has got landmines laying all over the place to get us caught. And he uses the word of God to divide us. But do you know the only reason the enemy can use the word of God to divide us? Because we read the word of God without the guidance of the Holy Spirit. We read it man's way. And we interpret it man's way to say what we want it to say. And it's no wonder it tells us to do all sorts of goofy things. And meanwhile, the world is looking at us saying, well, I see you're Christians. And they're running around doing all sorts of things that don't line up with the Jesus I see. And sadly, they're right. We need the Holy Spirit, y'all. We need the Holy Spirit, and we've talked about this every single week. But we need the Holy Spirit to direct our mourning, our comfort, our poorness in spirit, whatever beatitude you want to pick. The Holy Spirit has to aim it. Because if we're not walking in the Spirit, you are going to get caught in one of the enemy's traps. That is a promise, y'all, from Scripture. What's Paul saying in Galatians? Walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. Y'all, we need the Holy Spirit. That has got to register. I know we sing the song, right? Jana sang the song, led us in the song this morning, and that's, that's a potent reminder from the Lord, y'all. 
I felt so powerfully this morning. I texted Jana early this morning, but I got here this morning and I was getting stuff set up and God told me, worship is vital this morning. Worship is vital this morning. We are ushering in God's presence when we worship. We're, we're telling God, God, you are welcome in our hearts. And part of that cry of our hearts, y'all, has to be, God, I need you. Holy Spirit, I need you. Every moment, every day, I need you. We have got to get to that point, y'all. Because if we don't, we're going to miss it every time. And so let the Holy Spirit guide us. Let the Holy Spirit direct our aim. And when we do, when we let the Holy Spirit direct us, we see God's comfort. Now, you all know this. I spoiled this story last week, gave you a little hint that this was where I was going. But I love the story of Job. Have I told you that before? I love the story of Job. I absolutely love it. And I shared with you my life verse last week, Job thirteen fifteen. Though he slay me, yet I will hope in him. I hope when I die, I hope that people can say that about my life. That sounds horrible, doesn't it? Right? <laughs> God cursed Jeremy and made him a byword and did all sorts of awful things, but he sure hoped in him, right? Maybe not quite that extreme, but, but for real, no matter what happens to me on this earth, whether, whether people from the outside look in and say, boy, that sure doesn't look like blessing, my goal is God, right? My hope is in him. And no matter what the world does to me, my hope is in Jesus Christ. And I want the world to see, I want everybody in my life to see that. That when I am dead and gone, no matter how it went on this side of eternity, I was living for Jesus. My hope was in him. Whether he blesses me, what this world calls blessing, or whether he curses me with what this world calls curse. I want him. And Job's incredible statement of faith those are words to live by. And so I love that. So as if that wasn't enough, then you get to the end of the book of Job. And that's the part of the book of Job that I really love. That's why the book of Job is my favorite book in the Bible. Because at the end of the book of Job, God shows up. And I love, I mean, I love when God shows up, period, right? I would hope all of us as Christ followers love when God shows up. Because if God doesn't show up, why are we here, right? But when God shows up in the book of Job, it is absolutely incredible. And we see firsthand biblical account of how God comforts Job. And when we see how God comforts Job, it gives us incredible insight on how God comforts us. Now, let me warn you, though. Some of you are very familiar with the book of Job. Some of you less familiar with the book of Job. Can I tell you right now, the book of Job, when I say God shows up and comforts Job, if you are familiar with the book of Job, you're giving me a quizzical look right now. What? Because it does not look like comfort, y'all. It does not look anything like comfort. But can I ask you, does that mean that God does not comfort Job? Or does that mean that we don't understand at all what comfort actually looks like and i would argue the latter if god shows up and comforts job and we say well that doesn't look like comfort my definition of comfort is wrong not god right but god shows up 
and comforts Job. So just a real quick catch-up. This is, this is your survey course in the book of Job. If you've never read the book of Job, Job literally has everything taken from him. In the beginning of the book of Job, Satan comes to God and says, hey, I see your servant Job over there. He's a righteous man, but the only reason he's righteous is because you've blessed him. Let me take everything he has and he'll curse you. He won't follow you. He won't serve you. And God says, okay, you can test him. And so Satan comes and takes everything. I mean, literally everything. Thieves come. It all happens on the same day, too. I mean, imagine, put yourself in these shoes. Servants come and say, hey, Job, somebody, thieves just came and stole all your stuff. All your cattle, all your lambs, all your possessions, they're all gone. Another servant comes right on the heels of the other one and says, hey, Job, all your sons and daughters were having a party over at your one son's house, and the house whirlwind came through, collapsed the house, they're all dead. Everything is taken from Job. Then, as if that's not enough, the next day, well, next day-ish, something like that, we're not sure if it's an exact day, but then Satan comes to God and says, well, you took all his stuff, but you didn't actually impact him, <laughs> right? Everybody's like, loss of a child, that didn't impact him enough, right? But you didn't actually impact him. Strike him, and then he'll curse you and die. God says, all right, you can try it. So Satan comes, strikes Job with painful sores all over his body. Job gets horribly sick. His wife actually comes to him and says, Husband, curse God already and die. What are you doing trying to hang on? But Job will not. Job sticks to his guns. He refuses to curse God. But he also refuses to acknowledge that he did anything wrong. There's no, Job, Job and, and he complains about it too, right? That's what the entire book of Job is. Job complaining about all of these things happening to him. But at the end of the book of Job, God finally shows up. And this is God's comforting words. How he cradles Job and takes care of him. It says, The Lord answers Job from the whirlwind and says, who is this who darkens the divine plan by words without knowledge? Now tighten your belt on your waist like a man, and I shall ask you, and you inform me. So comforting, right? Can't you just feel the grace dripping off? Not at all, right? What's God saying? How dare you, Job? How dare you even assume? Who is this who darkens my perfect plan with words with absolutely no knowledge as to what's actually going on in this world? It doesn't get any better from here, y'all. He continues on a couple of chapters later. Now tighten your belt on your waist like a man, and I will ask you and you instruct me. Will you really nullify my judgment? Will you condemn me so that you may be justified? Or do you have an arm like God? And can you thunder with a voice like his? Y'all, I mean, I, I like to imagine myself. I don't like to imagine myself. That's a lie in Job's position, and God coming and saying this to my face, y'all, I would be digging myself a hole to try to crawl into. 
right? God minces no words, y'all. It is a very unsatisfying answer for us today, especially in our Western world where we are so enlightened, right? God spends four chapters of the book of Job, and they're not short chapters all either. Like, go read them. Four chapters, very sarcastically, showing Job that Job has absolutely no right to question God's plan. Incredible stuff, y'all. I love what God says. He asks Job, were you there when the foundations of the world were laid? Were you there? Do you know where the storehouses of the rain and snow are? Do you know which way the wind is going to blow and who holds the reins? I mean, he goes through all of it with Job. Tells Job, why don't you tell me, Job, since you know what's going on, since you're the expert here, please enlighten me. I like the sarcasm. God speaks my love language. But over and over again, this is God's response to Job. And y'all, if we're paying attention, this is God's response to us when we are prone to complain to him about our circumstances in this life. Now, I got to asterisk this, and I got to jump on a quick rabbit trail. Because there's a danger when you read the book of Job to say, okay, all right, so I can't complain to God. False. Absolutely false. In the book of Job, at the end of the book of Job, we're not going to talk about it today, but, but just very quickly, Job is completely exonerated. Job, God finds no fault in Job. Job did nothing wrong. Job's three friends, four friends, three friends, who came to him, they're the ones that God says, you all didn't get it right, right? Which is really weird. It's a strange twist at the end of the book of Job because Job seemingly is complaining to God the whole time. God, why is this happening to me? God, I haven't done anything wrong. God, what's going on? And then his three friends spend this whole back and forth trying to tell Job what he did wrong, defending God, right? Well, God would never do that. God's not unjust. God wouldn't do that. And so, but then at the end, you get to the end, and they're the ones that get in trouble, right? God says to them, you need to go ask Job to pray for you because if he doesn't pray for you, all this stuff's gonna happen to you. I'm mad at you, y'all because you spoke about things that you don't understand. But the difference between the two is that God took his complaints and he took them straight, I'm sorry, Job took his complaints and he took them straight to God. His friends, in their pride, tried to tell Job what he was doing wrong, tried to fix Job, right? Job was, or Job was forced to become humble, right? It wasn't a choice, <laughs> You're going to be humble after something like that happens to you. But in Job's humility, he turned the right direction. Yes, Job complained. Y'all, it is okay for you to complain. But can I encourage you, don't complain to your wife. Don't complain to your friends. Don't complain to your prayer group. That's called gossip. Complain to God. Take it to God. Take it directly to him. You might call that the aim of our complaining, right? God can handle it. He's the only one who can handle it, where it doesn't constitute as gossip. So take your complaints to God. 
Job took his complaints to God. But what God does with that is extremely unsettling to us, right? Because what we want more than anything are answers for our suffering, don't we? If God is going to make me go through the ringer, doggone it, I want to know why. God, why do I have to go through this? God, why do I have to suffer like this? God, why is this happening to this person? I want to understand it, Lord. And what does God do when he shows up for Job? He doesn't give him a single answer, y'all. Did you know that at the end, by the end of the book of Job, when you get to the book of Job, you can go through, through and comb through God's answer to Job. Not a single reason for Job's suffering. He doesn't tell Job, well, Satan came and he asked if I could test you, and so I was like, yeah, because I know you're going to come out on top, Job. I know you got a tiger in you, and you can be the champion. He doesn't say that. But that's what we want today, isn't it? We want that encouragement. Come on, Jesus, encourage me. God doesn't show up with a pep talk. God doesn't show up with a Bible verse with encouragement. He shows up and he puts Job in his place. Right? How unsettling. Well, God, I don't want you to show up and put me in my place. I want you to show up and tell me that I'm a champion and I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. But that's not what he does. And yet... At the end of all of this, Job is comforted. How do we know this? Because the Bible tells us Job's response. Look at this in verse 42, chapter 42. It says, Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things, and that no plan is impossible for you. Who is this who conceals advice without knowledge? Therefore, I have declared that which I do not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I do not know. Please listen, and I will speak. I will ask of you, and you instruct me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I retract, and I repent, sitting on dust and ashes." Y'all, does this register with any of us when we read the story of Job? I'm afraid there are far too many Christians. They want to jump straight to the end of Job because some, I've complained about this to you guys before. But the book of Job ends with God giving Job double everything back. And I've always hated that. I know I shouldn't. I, I shouldn't hate the word of God. I don't hate the word of God. But it happens the way God intended it to happen. So that's what happened. But that always drives me nuts. Because then you get people who come to this conclusion, well, just suffer for a little while and then God's going to double everything you lost. That's not the story. That's not the takeaway here, y'all. Because the reality is this, is, this is what's so interesting to me. Look at what's happening here. Job is still suffering, right? God has not relieved any of his symptoms. He hasn't cured his disease. He hasn't blessed him with double back yet. His kids are still dead. His possessions still gone. The sores are still on his body. And what does Job declare? This is all too wonderful for me. Are you kidding me? <laughs> You're sitting there rotting away of leprosy? 
painful sores all over your body, your kids are dead, everything's gone, and you state this is all too wonderful for me? Because Job saw God. Y'all, and the very presence of our Creator was enough for Job to forget everything going on in his life. For Job to realize, holy cow, the stuff here on this earth, this is, this is like a nightmare compared to my eternity. Because I have seen you. I love this line. Y'all, Christian, we got to get here. I have to get here, y'all. Where we can say, God, I heard about you. I heard about you. I read about you, Jesus. I've seen TV shows. I've heard pastors talk. I've heard the stories. I've heard about you, Lord. But now, I see you with my eyes. But now, I experience your presence, God. And I will never be the same. Guys, the presence of God is enough. Comb through the Bible. Look through the Bible. And when God comforts his people, it is always with his presence. It may be accompanied with other things. We talked a while ago, we did a sermon series on Elijah, right? And he, he tells Elijah to take a nap and he bakes bread for Elijah, right? Then Elijah runs to the mountain, but then what happens? God shows up. God's presence, right? And Elijah continues on this journey because he experiences God's presence. God's presence is our comfort, y'all. You know, I'm such a knucklehead, I don't put two and two together. But thank God, God does, right? Because God speaks to me this morning, Jeremy, worship is vital today. Dummy Jeremy doesn't even think twice about, well, what am I preaching on? right? Why is worship so vital today? Because we desperately need God's presence, y'all. Desperately need God's presence. Job sees God, and it is enough. Guys, is God enough for us? And can I challenge you, if you feel like God isn't enough for you, the answer isn't that you need to pray more. The answer isn't that you need to read your Bible more. The answer isn't that you need more, more, more to add more to your stuff. The answer is that you need his presence to flood your life and your situation. Now look, prayer and reading your Bible are great ways to get there. I'm not su suggesting that you throw those things out. But if God's not in it, y'all, it's worthless. Prayer without God's presence are, is just words. It's worthless. Scripture reading without God's presence, it's just another book. Unless God's presence is with you when you are devouring this book, and if God's presence is with you, y'all, you will devour this book. No other book will fill you like this book if his presence is with you. But we need his presence. 
Job sees God and is satisfied. So satisfied that not once after that does he complain about his suffering. And y'all, I firmly believe that even if God had not restored a single thing with Job, even if God had made him live out the rest of his days with those painful sores and without any possession, I believe that Job would have had unending joy because Job saw God and God was enough. God himself was his comfort and he comforted him with his presence. So the question is, how do we comfort others? If God comforts us with his presence, then how are we supposed to comfort others? Last week we talked about praying only what the Holy Spirit tells us to pray, right? And we practice that. And there is always the follow-up question when we talk about that. Always. Well, what do I do if the Holy Spirit doesn't say anything? Right? And I think this is the answer, y'all. Because sometimes you don't have to pray a word. You comfort others with your presence. It's an unsatisfying answer, isn't it? And that's shame on us. Because, y'all, this, this is the danger, right? When we pray, deep down inside, whether you realize it or not, you want to fix the situation, don't you? Me too, y'all, right? That's what good pastors do. You come to me with your problems, and I tell you exactly how to get out of them. False. That is false. When you pray with someone and the Holy Spirit doesn't tell you what to say, maybe this is your prayer. God, you know this situation better than I do. So would you come and flood us now with your presence? That's it. What's Jesus say in this Sermon on the Mount? When you pray, don't pray like the Pharisees who drag on and on and on and on and think that their eloquent words are going to have some kind of pull with God. Keep it short, right? I was, I, this, this always drives me nuts. I think it was a Mother Teresa quote, but you know, where she says, you know, pray and when necessary, use words, right? I, that always drives me nuts. Or no, it's preach the gospel and when necessary, use words. That's what she says. That always drives me nuts because people always abuse that and use it as an excuse to never talk to anybody about Jesus. That's why I don't like that. It's not because it's not true, but I think it is true. Pray, and when necessary, use words. But y'all, God's presence is enough. God knows the situation. It's so interesting because in the story of Job, this is actually one of my father-in-law's favorite passages in the Bible. I remember the very first time he taught me on it, but he said, Job's friends actually got it right, and then they opened their mouths. But it's true, y'all. If you go back to the very beginning of the book of Job in chapter 2, look at how Job's friends start. It says, Now when Job's three friends heard about all this adversity that had come upon him, they came, each one from his own place, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuite, and Zophar the Namathite. And they made an appointment together to come to sympathize with him and comfort him. 
When they looked from a distance, they did not recognize him. They raised their voices and wept, and each of them tore his robe, and they threw dust over their heads toward the sky. Then they sat down on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights, with no one speaking a word to him, for they saw that his pain was very great. Job's friends absolutely had it right in the beginning, y'all. And then they absolutely ruined it by opening their mouths. Which makes me ask, how many times have I ruined God's comfort by opening my mouth and trying to fix someone's mourning? And I apologize to all of you that I have done that with. And I am certain that there are some of you in here that I have done that with. See, it's not that we mean ill, right? We're not trying to hurt the other person. But in our pride, we think what this person needs most right now is my wisdom to fix their problems. Don't we? We try to relate with the other person. And so we tell stories about how we've suffered a similar loss. Counseling, they call that grief hijacking. Right? And you don't do it because you're trying to be a jerk. But you do it because, oh, you lost your mom? Uh, Yeah, well, my grandma died once. We're the same. And we don't say that. But guys, that's what it sounds like. How many of you have been grieving something? You've lost something. And you've had a friend come up to you and try to sympathize with you by telling you a situation they went through that was just the same or even worse. It doesn't make you feel better. In fact, every time anybody's ever done that to me, the only thing that goes through my mind is you have no idea how I feel right now. I don't care who you've lost. And yet, I do it with others all the time, right? We want so badly to fix people, to fix mourning, when the reality is we can't. There is nothing we can do to fix someone else's grief. But the presence of God, y'all, that can fix anything, I've told you this before, it's been a little while, but, but there are two words that mean more to me when I am suffering than anything else in the world. And they are with you. I have two men in my life who are spiritual giants. Most of you know, my father-in-law is one. The other one's Pastor Kyle, Kyle Burkholder. He pastors Covenant Church. And every single time I am going through something, Every single time I am going through the ringer, both of them always text the same thing. The end of the text. Sometimes there's a Bible verse in there. Sometimes there's, you know, an encouragement. Lots of times there's not. Lots of times it is only two words. With you. Sometimes three or four if they're feeling, you know, extra into it. I am with you. Then it's four and it's like, whoa. (laughs) Somebody's having a eloquent day we're really throwing out the words but every time y'all every time i am going through the ringer more than anything else i don't want advice i don't need encouragement i want to know the person is with me i want to know i'm not alone and i don't need somebody to sit there and blabber on and on and on and on all i need is somebody to come and put their arm around me you don't have to say a word In fact, lots of times when we try to say a word, that ruins the moment, doesn't it? 
presence is powerful. God's presence is the most powerful thing in the world. And he shows us this when he responds to our greatest need and comforts us while we're mourning. So why do we try to do it different? In our earlier passage from 1 Thessalonians, Paul ends that chapter by telling us to comfort one another with these words. He does not say to comfort one another with your words. He does not say to comfort one another with powerful scripture. He doesn't say comfort one another with prayer. He says comfort one another with these words. The fact that Jesus Christ is real. That this is a reality. God's presence is a reality. Jesus is coming back. And that you don't have to wait for that day for his presence to come into your life. That God is here now. You know, we act like Christmas is the only time that we're allowed to talk about Emmanuel, God with us, right? God is with us all the time, church, right? The reality is the Holy Spirit lives inside of you as long as you have invited him in. And I want to encourage you this morning. If you have any question about whether or not the Holy Spirit is inside of you. If you have any question, the Bible emphatically tells us that if you even say that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe that God raised him from the dead, that can come by no other means than the Holy Spirit revealing that to you. So if you can say that and you believe it, the Holy Spirit is in you. But I want to add to that this morning, right now, we're going to close in prayer, and if there is anyone here that questions whether or not you have the Holy Spirit inside of you, I want to pray with you. I want to pray with you this morning. This is not a formula, but there are places in the book of Acts where the, the apostles, they pray with one another for the Holy Spirit and lay hands on people, and the Holy Spirit fills those people that they lay hands on. Now, we've got to be careful, because like I said, it's not a formula. You cannot come anywhere and have somebody who says, well, if I just lay hands on you, you'll be filled with the Spirit. Not how it works. And if you trust a formula more than you trust God, in my experience, God will not honor that. He wants you to seek Him, not a way to get this stuff inside of you, right? So you've got to get that right. But I want to pray with you this morning. If you have questions about the Holy Spirit, if we can talk about it, all this stuff, but I want to pray that you would know that you know that you know that you walk out these doors with the confidence, unshaken confidence, that God himself is living inside of you. But why is that so important, though, y'all? Connect the dots here. God's presence is the most powerful thing in this world. Who is living inside of you? God himself, right? Why is your presence so powerful? Why, when someone is grieving, can you just walk up to that person and put your arm around them and not say a word and have that be the most powerful thing in the world? It's not because you're awesome. It's not because the cologne you wear or your deodorant is extremely, oh, I wore the good stuff today, right? It's because God is with you. 
Now look, presence is nice, right? You can have friends who don't know nothing about Jesus, and when they, they comfort you and they, they're with you in a time of trouble, that's nice. But it doesn't change anything. But when the Holy Spirit comes into the situation, it changes everything. And y'all, this doesn't mean just with Christian brothers and sisters. With absolutely anyone you come in contact with. It could be at your work. Y'all, you don't save anyone. Your words don't save anyone. But your presence, your presence can change the atmosphere in a room. Not because it's yours, but because the Holy Spirit goes with you everywhere you go. And we don't even have to say a word, y'all unless the Holy Spirit is telling us to. There's this really cool story. Jana's granddad, he used to pastor a church down in Laredo, Texas. And I loved his response when people would come in seeking salvation. They'd come into his church and they'd, you know, they'd say, Pastor, you know, I want to give my heart to the Lord. I've, I've been running and I just, I'm, just ready, I'm just ready to give my heart to the Lord. He did not lead them in a salvation prayer. He did not lead them to Christ at all, other than to say to them, let's seek the Lord together. And he would walk with that person to the front of their church, and they would both get down on their knees, and they would pray. And he wouldn't pray for the person. He didn't say anything to the person. He would just be with that person while they sought the Lord. Y'all, that's what we got to be about. Let's seek the Lord together. We have far too high an opinion of ourselves, don't we? (laughs) Thinking that our prayers move mountains, and our prayers can fix this situation. But y'all, if the Holy Spirit hasn't told you to pray it, it's not going to move anything. This is a bold claim, y'all, but you want 100% of the prayers you pray to be answered? Then pray only what the Holy Spirit tells you to pray. I, I guarantee you, you want me, I'll write a book on it. You want me to, will that make it more authoritative if I write a book about it? It'll be called 100% Prayer Guarantee, and I bet you I'll sell a billion copies because everybody wants that. It's going to be the worst book you ever read, though, because that's all it is. It'll be one page. That page will be a page turner, though, because everybody will be looking, where's the rest of the book? You want 100% of the prayers you pray answered? Then only pray what the Holy Spirit tells you to pray. And when the Holy Spirit doesn't say anything, just sit. Western civilization, (laughs) we have got to learn to be comfortable in silence. We have got to learn to be able to just sit with each other. And if we just weep together, then just weep together. And if we just laugh together, then just laugh together. But let God's presence work through you. Through words, when he tells you to speak. Through actions, when he tells you to act and through presence when he doesn't say anything at all. My goal is God himself, y'all. 
at any cost and by any road. So let's let the simplicity of presence comfort us and comfort those around us. So we're going to open things up and just spend time together, y'all, just praying with one another. If you need comforted, I would really encourage you to, to open up with somebody, to be vulnerable with somebody, find somebody to share with. But y'all, even if you don't want to do that, just sit in God's presence and let him comfort you. Can we take some time to do that this morning? All right, let's take some time to just pray and seek God's presence. And if you feel led to go pray with someone else, if you feel led to just go sit with someone else, to put your arm around them and to just sit, please do that. But do not ignore what the Holy Spirit is telling you to do this morning. Amen? Amen. Thank you for listening to the Gospel House Podcast. We pray that you were pointed to Jesus and will apply what you learn to look more like him each and every day. If you found today's message impactful, do us a favor and hit the follow button. Leave us a rating and write up a review to help others find our podcast. You can also help us by sharing the podcast so that together we can show the world that the gospel of Jesus Christ is enough. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Head to our website, www.thegospel.house connect. Fill out the form and someone from our Gospel House family will connect with you. God bless you and remember, the gospel of Jesus Christ is always enough.